thank you. Boy, that sounds to me like refuge, doesn't it? Where he covers me with his hand. Praise the Lord for that. You know, if the Lord didn't uh, shield us somehow from all of the slings and arrows of the devil, we wouldn't make it a day. Folks, we couldn't. Uh, We don't realize how well protected we are. He is uh, really holding back the storms that the devil would bring our way. There's a song that we used to sing many years ago. He knows, he knows the storms that would my way oppose. He knows, he knows and tempers every wind that blows. The Lord purposely makes sure that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. Amen? Amen. That ye may be able to bear it. Open your Bible, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. And tonight, I finally get to complete the third part of a three-part series on the communion service. We began this back in July, July 16th, Sunday, July 16th, in the evening. And then um, August 4th, in the evening. Uh, Then September was a a morning uh, communion service, and we didn't uh, have time to do it, but now we're into October in the evening. And so we can take the time to um, finish this off. And the other two messages are up online if you go to our website under media and look up um, recent sermons, click there, and just kind of follow your nose a little bit, and you'll see it. There's a whole slew of uh, messages, lots of lots of uh, preaching there, and just go back to uh, July. You'll find it in the communion service, and the first Let's see, it'll be the second Sunday in in July, the first Sunday in August, and you'll find the first two parts. If you missed them or if you've forgotten what the content is, just go take a look, and um, it's all there for you. We're going to um, give you the the last uh, uh, of the the rules that govern the, the Lord's table. And there's... Five of them, anyhow. Uh, this is rule number five, and um, it's basically this: we're to keep doing it till the Lord comes back. The Lord gave us this uh, beautiful picture. He doesn't tell us to celebrate the table every week, every day, every month, or every year. He leaves that up to the discretion of the local church. Some local churches celebrate the table of the Lord once a year, some twice a year. Um, we do it every month. That seems very common amongst a lot of churches. Uh, there are those churches that that uh, do it once a week. Every week they do it. So um, that's up to them. God bless them. But uh, we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to um, start in here on verse 26. And so if you would close your eyes and bow your head, we'll pray once more. Heavenly Father, once again we humble ourselves, and we uh, acknowledge your, your wonder and your love, your wisdom and your power. We acknowledge your lordship in our lives. Our Father, we ask that you would help us tonight and prepare our hearts, because in just a little while we want to partake of this wonderful table. We want to, by faith, see again the wonderful picture 
the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. And sometimes we, we just get the surface of things and we think that's all there is and we don't realize that there's a whole lot more. Help us to go deeper. Help us to get more of the significance. Our Father, we ask you please to encourage our hearts and strengthen us to be more like Jesus. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 26, we're told here, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. The Lord's Supper shows Jesus' death and uh, how he washes away sin. And basically, we're to keep doing it, keep doing the Lord's Supper until Jesus comes back. And the way the world is going, you never know. This may be our last one on earth. Some people would say, hooray, hallelujah, amen to that, even so come Lord Jesus. Um, the word ordinance, we call this an ordinance. It's not a sacrament. Now this is ground we've already covered. We've taught these principles already. A sacrament, the idea of a sacrament is something to make you more sacred. An ordinance means an order sent down to us from the chief commander, from the boss. That's why it's called an ordinance and not a sacrament. As a church, we have um, a communion service once a month. And here's the point. We're to keep doing it. We're not to forsake the table of the Lord. Uh, if, if you are possibly able, you need to be at church when we break bread, when we celebrate the table. It's not an option it's an order. It's an ordinance. It's sent down to us. It's like after we're saved, the Lord orders us to follow Him in the waters of baptism. That's an ordinance. And so we get baptized, not always because we feel like it, but we do it out of obedience to the Lord. After baptism, naturally comes church membership. And uh, there are certain things that the Lord uh, gives us to do, and they're called commandments. And uh, the Lord Jesus said, If ye love me, you will keep my commandments. And uh, he that uh, keepeth my commandments, he it is that loveth me. And this is all in the Gospel of John. And so an ordinance is an order given to us by the boss. And so normally we celebrate the table of the Lord once a month. We do it on Sunday evenings, two months in a row. And then we do it on a Sunday morning on the third month. That's for those who are not able to get out to the evening service. And then we go back to the evening services. And I really prefer the evening service because we can relax a bit more, take our time. We can do more teaching about the, uh, the Lord's table and, and other, other aspects of it. Whereas we can't do that so much in the morning. We're a little more pressed for time. And it feels like we're just sort of tacking it on the end. It's better than nothing. But understand this, it's an order. Now, if you look at verse 2, the Apostle Paul actually praised the Corinthian church because they obeyed and they kept the ordinance. Verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances. Now, there's an S on the end, referring both to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Paul says, As I deliver them to you. And so, uh, a church, as a church... We have communion once a month, 
And uh, if you're saved, the Lord requires you to be here. It's, uh, it's an order from the Lord. Now, that may take someone by surprise tonight. Oh, I thought that I could just do whatever I want. Well, you can, but you won't prosper. You can do whatever you want. You can go out and get drunk if you want. But you won't prosper. If we want to prosper, we need to obey the Lord. If this is a new concept for you tonight and you struggle with it, say, do I really have to be here? You need to talk to the Lord about that. Obviously, I don't think the Lord would want you to come to church if you're snarly and snappy and grumbly and you don't want to be here, then don't come. But if you want to love him and follow him and be close to him, then you'll come. And the, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance. Um, however, the unsaved people in the church are under no such order. Unsaved people are not commanded to be in obedience to this ordinance. Unsaved people in the church are actually not allowed to partake. And we try to make that very clear every time we have a communion service, particularly in the morning when we're more liable to have unsaved people with us. Now, if you look, please, at verse 27. Um, Paul writes here, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, the word wherefore, you, you'll know that there are two, two kind of similar words. One is therefore, and the other is wherefore. Now, the difference between those two words is therefore uh, speaks of uh, logical consequences, logical, maybe we won't use the word consequence, that's a poor choice of word on my part. Uh, a logical ending, a logical uh, uh, conc conclusion. How about that? One plus one equals two. Doesn't get too much simpler than that, you know. But the therefore gives you the idea of a logical conclusion. Now, the word wherefore speaks more of a, of a consequence or a result. Um, now, usually it's a negative consequence, but sometimes in the Bible it's actually a positive consequence. But normally it's, it's a, a negative consequence. But it tends more to be a, a, a thing that happens because this happened, this happens. Now that's when they use the word wherefore. Uh, now, here Paul says, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup unworthily. Some Christians mistake the meaning there and they say, but pastor, I'm not worthy. I'll never be worthy. That's not what Paul is talking about. If you keep your finger there in Corinthians and turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 13, we'll see exactly the idea behind this word unworthy. Acts chapter 13. The apostle Paul uh, and Barnabas were preaching the gospel and they were uh, in a Jewish synagogue. And uh, so, verse 44, the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. 
but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves, what's that next word? Unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That is the idea of unworthy. The idea of unworthy is something that has no worth. It's unworthy. There's no worth to it. And what do you do with things that have absolutely no worth or value to you? You throw them out. That's what the garbage can is for. Things that are of no worth, we get rid of them. And so, um, I'll tell you what, let's take another look. Let's go back to Matthew. And this should nail it home here. Matthew 10. And let's see. Here we go. Here we have the Lord Jesus speaking to us. Uh, verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Confessing Christ before others is very important. It is not God's will for you and I to try to be secret agents for Jesus and to never let anyone know that we're saved. You need to let people know that you love the Lord. Yeah, but if I tell people I love the Lord, they'll think I'm crazy. Who cares? They need to hear it. And when Jesus sees that you're confessing your love for him before others, Jesus will turn to the Father and confess you to the Father. How do you like that? That's pretty cool, isn't it? Jesus will do that for you and I when we confess our love for him to others. And so he says, verse 33, Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Anyhow, we get down to verse number 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not, what's that word? Worthy. Is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not, what's the word? Worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not, what's the word? Worthy. You get the idea? And so we go back to 1 Corinthians. Whoso, in verse uh, 27, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. We're not talking about a saved person who's trying to be humble. We're talking about an unsaved person at a church partaking of the the bread and of the juice. That's what we've got here. The unworthy refers to the unsaved. Christ's death on the cross for sinners is the most important, the most holy thing ever in all of earth's history. There is nothing more important in the eyes of God, the author of history, the author of the universe, than the death of His Son on the cross for my sin and your sin. The bread and the cup picture this death. And so for an unsaved person, a person who is unworthy, they're not saved, they're ready to die and go to hell, for them to partake makes that person guilty of breaking Christ's body and shedding Christ's blood. Now, how do you think God feels about someone who broke Christ's body and shed Christ's blood? How do you think the Father feels about that? You who are parents, you know how it feels when someone offends your child. If a kid offends your child, it makes you upset. If an adult offends your child, it makes you rage. And you know, God the Father had to turn His back on His own Son. He drew the curtain across the the heaven 
and it all went dark. In fact, at the very beginning of the process, as they were nailing him to the cross, Jesus had to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If Jesus had not prayed that, I think that God's wrath would have fallen from heaven and would have barbecued everyone. How dare you do that to my son? Now, it's back here to 1 Corinthians. We've got the case of an unsaved man, an unsaved woman, partaking of the table of the Lord. What, what happens? What's the consequence? When it says, wherefore? All right, let's look at verse 29. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily... Now, here's a thought for you. You can underline that word unworthily in verse 29. Go back up to verse 27 at the end. Underline that word unworthily and you could draw a line between them. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh... Now, what's that next word? Say it out loud. Damnation. Say it again, please. Damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This teaches that the consequence for the unsaved partaking of communion is damnation. What in the world is damnation? Now, we've, we've all heard that word. We've heard people use that word inappropriately. But that's a Bible word. Um, damnation means total, complete, eternal destruction in a place called hell. This morning, we talked about the story of life. We talked about the concern and the king and the commission. And when we talked about the concern, the concern is this, that there is waiting for every unsaved man, woman, and young person on, on the other side of life. In the next life, there is waiting eternal damnation. Destruction so bad it cannot be repaired. Some people have the idea, okay, well, I'll, I'll go to hell, but it'll only be for a short time. Even if it's a thousand years, then I'll get out of hell, see, because I'll have paid my debt. And then I, I can go to heaven. Not going to happen. Sometimes we get upset with our judicial system because a murderer will be given ten years and they're out in four years for good behavior. And we get upset with that sort of thing. Well, when unsaved people die, they end up in hell, there's no getting out for good behavior. It cannot be repaired. They cannot have a, an eternity that's repaired from destruction you know, in, into um, uh, uh, eternal bliss. It, it, it cannot happen. It is so totally, completely destroyed that it's beyond repair. Unsaved people don't seem to understand salvation, nor do they discern the importance of Christ's body and blood. If you look at chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, I think you'll see that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 14 says, But the natural man, now the natural man is the unsaved man in his natural condition. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. No unsaved man or woman can really understand the things of God. They can get a few ideas in their head, but they can't really understand the things of God. They're dead spiritually. And so, when it comes to chapter 11, you get unsaved people partaking of the 
the, the two elements here, they're unworthy and they end up hurting their own cause. They're going to drink to themselves damnation, basically. They're, it's going to be turned around against them. When God called his people out of Egypt, and there was who knows how many, a couple of million of them or something like that, with all of their animals and all their household stuff, and God opened up the Red Sea, and he must have opened that thing so wide, I don't know how wide, a mile, give or take, I don't know, but he opened up the Red Sea so big that all his people were able to get through there on dry ground safely. But then the Egyptians said, hey, if they could do it, we could do it. You remember this story? And so they went down to chase after the Jews. They went down, all their armies went down into this big gully between the big walls of water. And when they got down there, God just closed the walls on them, just like that. And that Red Sea that had been like the salvation of Israel became the death of Egypt. And unsaved people, when they look at the table of the Lord, they want to partake of the the bread and the cup, they don't realize, (laughs) for us it's life, for them it's death and damnation. I said it before, you know, if you're not saved, this will kill you. This is meant for saved people. It's a command for saved people. Now, because the church at Corinth was a mixture of saved and unsaved, Paul told them to examine themselves and to determine if they're saved or not. Look at verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, keep your finger there and turn to the right to 2 Corinthians and go to chapter 13. 2 Corinthians Chapter 13. And so in verse, the verse we just read, verse 28, but let a man examine himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. So, 1 Corinthians 11, examine, let a man examine himself. 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. The whole idea is determine. If you're saved or not, some people don't believe that you can know that. Some people think, well, you just do the best you can. And, you know, when you die, then God's the one who decides. Well, not really. God's already made the decisions. And he's left the final decision up to us. If people end up in hell, it's because they decided not to get saved, not to take Jesus, not to go God's way. And there are a lot of people that think they can get to heaven by their own good works or by keeping the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule or doing something nice. Be nice to people. Be, you know, the Golden Rule, be, be kind and nice to people, right? Do unto others before they do unto you. I mean, as, they, as you would have them do un, unto you. They've got the thing mixed up. None of that stuff works. Nothing. Only Christ saves. The one and only way. And so... We're told here to examine ourselves. You must know for sure you're saved. If you've got doubts tonight about your salvation, am I saved? Am I not saved? But I made a prayer, but I don't know. Maybe I was fooling myself. But, but this, but, but that, what you need to do is spend a lot of time in the book of First John and read that through very carefully because you'll find a minimum of seven tests of new life. 
people who do exercise, they work out in the gym and all that, they like to check their pulse, and so they put two fingers here on their neck, and then they look at their watch or something, right? Or now they've got smart things that tell them, you know, what they had for breakfast and, you know, what they're thinking and stuff like that. But, you know, usually people would, on the jugular there, and they feel for the pulse, boom, 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 and they time it, right? By the way, that's one of the tests of life. You find a body on the floor, and you check the, is there a pulse? <gasps> There's no pulse. You say, well, maybe they're still alive. Maybe the heart is beating so quietly. You put a mirror up to their nose to see if the mirror fogs as they're breathing. <gasps> There's no fog. There's still more tests that could be made to determine if there's still life in this human body. The test of spiritual life you'll find in the book of 1 John. It's the privilege of you and I. We can know it. We can know for sure. When I was saved, I was told I could lose my salvation. Oh, you don't know what that does to a, a new Christian. And for the next two years, from 75 to 77, I honestly thought I could lose my salvation. And I had thoughts, crazy thoughts. Well, what if I lost my salvation? And what if the tribulation came? Jesus came, the rapture, and took, took everyone home, and I'm left behind and, to go through the tribulation. And what if I end up being the Antichrist? And I know that this is just all nonsense. I realize that, but as a young Christian, you know, the devil plays with your mind. And so, supposing that, um, um, let's see here. Uh, well, I don't know, I'll borrow Pastor Tim again, because, you know, he's, he's very forgiving for my sermon illustrations. So I'll, I'll borrow him and so he and Miss Lydia get married. And the boy's all happy. And then I go up to him and say, you know, those were just the words of man. How do you know you're really married? And I get him to doubt. Well, maybe I'm not married to this woman. Uh-oh. And so she approaches him and he takes a step away. What are you doing? Well, I'm not sure we're married. What are you, nuts? We just had the wedding ceremony. Here's the rings. Here's a piece of paper. I know, but those are all man-made. What I need is something from God to tell me that we're married. Can you imagine them trying to live like that? Boy, no one would want to. Where's the joy in marriage? Where's the peace? Where's the, the, the close communion, husband and wife? You, you, you can't have it. And people who think they can lose their salvation, they go through times. In 1977, someone challenged me to check this out, see what the Bible has to say on the matter. And boy, I really researched it. And I finally, you know, came out of that. It was a couple of weeks really pouring into this and studying it. And I finally lift up my head and said, it's not me trying to cling on to him. It's him holding me in the palm of his hand. And I accepted the truth that I can't lose it. Praise the Lord. And the peace that came over me, it just washed over me. It was incredible. And boy, then I could really start to concentrate and serve the Lord because I didn't have to worry about my salvation and losing it. I remember many years ago when our church was very small and we were down in 9061 King George here, a small little building, we had a, an elderly man attend. And he, he was with us for a couple of months. And he went out door knocking with us and so on. He came, sang the hymns and everything. And uh, all of a sudden he disappeared. And so I don't know what happened to him. And I tried contacting him and nothing, nothing, nothing. Well, I tried again. Finally, I got him, maybe by accident on the phone. But I got him on the phone. And I said to him, hey, we missed you. Where have you been? Well, he said, and he, honest, he was honest with me. He said, um, well, I, I, I don't think I can come there anymore. And I said, why not? 
And, uh, well, let me summarize for you what he told me. Uh, there was a young girl, uh, just a young teenage girl, very young, a teeny bopper, very young teenage girl uh, in the church that caught his eye. Now, by the way, she doesn't come to this, to this church, okay? This is years and years ago, so don't think it's anyone here or anyone that comes to our church. It's not, okay? But it, it was a, a young gal, and he, he saw her. And he thought, oh, I'm going to have a bad thought. I'm, I'm going to, and if I, I'll lose my salvation. And so he decided he needed to leave our church because if he had a bad thought, then he could lose his salvation. Do you see the fear and bondage of that? Like, that's not wisdom. I, I, you know, I don't want to call it foolish or stupid, but that is not the wisdom that God gives. There are other ways God's ways to overcome impure thoughts. There are God's ways to overcome greed and overcome laziness and overcome anger. There are God's ways to do it, not to run from the situation. That man, I don't know if, he, if he's even still alive today, but he was forever on the run. Forever on the run. Imagine that. You could never put your roots down anywhere and grow and bear fruit because you're forever on the run. Listen, you can know for sure, for sure, for sure you're saved. And all oh, the joy and peace that gives. And so let a man examine himself. And then let him partake. You must know. And if, and, um, if you're not sure, then don't partake. But if you know for sure, then it's okay for you to go ahead and partake. But what happens when a Christian gets involved with sin and then he or she goes and has communion? Then what? What happens then? Well, that's why we have verse 30, I believe. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Now, there's three things here. We've got here saved people acting like unsaved people. They're sinning, they're not confessing, and they're going ahead and taking communion. Well, they're not going to end up in hell. They're not going to lose their salvation, but they will get a judgment from God. And... Um, the word judge means to compare a person's actions with a standard, such as the law, and then to pass sentence upon them. That's what it means to judge. There are three judgments from God given here in this verse, in verse 30. The first is weak. The word weak means to be unsteady on the feet, ready to fall over. Now that's a pretty serious condition if you ask me. The second one is even worse, sickly. Sickly means you can't even get on your feet. The idea is you're literally dying. That's a critical condition. So you go from a serious condition to a critical condition. And the third judgment is sleep. That's the death of a Christian. Um, Christian is inferred by the, the word we in verse 31. You see that? For if we would judge ourselves. So the sleep here is a reference to death. And it's, uh, the Christian is inferred here. So what's a Christian supposed to do? What's a born-again man or woman supposed to do? Do you remember when Jesus had his uh, disciples up in the upper room and uh, he took a towel and girded himself in a basin of water? You remember that? And he got down and what did he do? He washed what? Disciples' feet. That's right. Now some churches take that as an ordinance and so they have foot washing in there. Now, a big problem with that is that Judas got his feet washed too. And so these churches don't realize 
that they are supposed to wash saved and unsaved feet at the same at the same service. They don't like to do that. They just want to wash the feet of the saved. And so you can't pick and choose. Now, that foot washing was never an ordinance because it never shows up anywhere else in the, um, in the New Testament as an ordinance. Foot washing was a common, common courtesy done in the culture 2,000 years ago. That was a common thing. When I've been over to some of your homes for visit, you'll, uh, I take my shoes off and you offer me slippers. Yes? Yeah, that's a, that's a courtesy. What I do is I like to bring my own slippers. So I carry them around in a trunk with me. Have slipper, we'll travel. You know, I can go anywhere, I have slippers. But it's a common courtesy. The common courtesy back then was to wash the stranger's feet. Or, or your friend that comes over, and, and usually it was a job for the household servant, would wash your feet. It was very, very common. Jesus took on him the form of a servant and he washed their feet. Now, he comes to Peter and Peter says, oh Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, well, then you can't be part of me. And then Peter said, well, then don't stop at my feet. Do my hands and my head, you know. Give me a whole shower, a whole bath. And then Jesus said, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet but is clean every whit. What does that mean? It means he's already taken a bath or a shower. He's already clean. It's just his feet need to be touched up. And that pictures for us daily confession of sin. You're washed in the blood of the Lamb, beloved. You know, you've been made right with God at Calvary, but you still have a problem with day-to-day sin. And every day you need to get before God in the morning and in the evening. Call it the morning and evening sacrifices. How about that? At a devotional time. Book ends on the day. Spend it with God. That's where you ask God to forgive you. The Holy Spirit will remind you of things maybe you've done or haven't done or should have done, didn't do, whatever. And then you ask His forgiveness. Keep, keep short accounts with sin. Don't let, a, don't let a, a day go by without looking after that. And so this is the idea here. So in verse 31, we look at it. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. So if we judge and confess, by the way, the sin in ourselves, God will not have to do it for us. Now that's an important principle. And I'll freely tell you that I'm not as perfect as I wish I were. And I still have a struggle with sin, just like you still have a struggle with sin. Because if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We don't like to say it. We don't like to admit it. We like people to think the best of us. And so this is something we tend to bury But the truth be known, every one of us has weak areas and every one of us struggles with sin somehow, somewhere. It happens. If you don't think you have any struggle with sin, you really are deceiving yourself. Uh, An evangelist friend of mine who's now in heaven was preaching to a a, a church full of people and, uh, and he said, okay, how many here have sinned? And everyone raised their hand except this one man down in the front. And he looked at him and said, Sir, you didn't raise your hand. You don't think that, uh, you don't think that, you're, that, that you've committed sin? And he says, Nope, I don't commit sin. And my evangelist friend said, you, So you think you're perfect? And he says, Yep. 
And his wife was sitting right beside him, and she said, he's not that perfect. And you may be able to fool yourself, but your family member, your loved one, they know. They know. Hey, folks, isn't it sad when uh, the children see us acting one way in church and then acting another way at home? Don't you think that's sad? And I think that's why sometimes some children, they get turned off from church because they see a change in the parents. The parents act all holy and good and happy at church, but then getting home or in the car even on the way home and it's grumble this and mumble that and this and that and the other thing and they get home and the, the kids are looking at this and it, it makes an indelible impression upon them. So we must make sure that doesn't happen. Now, if that has happened in your home, you need, parents, you need to apologize to your kids for that. You need to recognize it's wrong, ask God to forgive you, and then you need to ask your kids to forgive you. You say, oh, I could never do that. You'll never get the blessings of God then. You have to humble yourself. And you've got to take sin as far as it went. If you offended your neighbor, you need to at least go to your neighbor and make it right. You offend your kids by playing the part of a hypocrite. At church, at home, two different people. Holy on Sunday, live like the devil on Monday. Boy, you need to apologize. Anyhow, I don't mean to get off so much on that. But this here, if we would judge sin in ourselves, how do we do that? Well, you have to sit yourself down and talk to yourself. You've got to be your own judge, jury, and executioner. <laughs> executioner? Yeah, you've got to make things right. You have to sit down with yourself and you've just got to use tough love on yourself. Now, self, listen, the way you be, behaved today and what you said, that wasn't right, was it? Well, no, I suppose. That was a sin. Well, well I don't know if I'd call it a sin. Would Jesus do it? No, Jesus wouldn't do it. Then it's a sin. Oh, you're right, it's a sin. And you've got to judge yourself. You've got to talk to yourself and judge yourself. Now, don't make people think you've gone crazy doing that. I'm just acting it out a little bit here for you. But you have to judge the sin in yourself. And you've, you have to be the one to say, what I said was wrong. What I did was wrong. I made a promise and I broke my promise. That's wrong. You've got to judge the sin in yourself. And God says, if you're mature enough, if you're growing up enough to do that, great. If you're not mature enough to do it, if you're not growing up enough to do it, then I have to do it for you, says God. That's where the problem comes in. That's where this business of weak, sickly, and and sleep can come in. And so verse 32. But when we are judged. Now this would only happen because we're not judging our own sin. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to think about it today. Ah, maybe tomorrow. Ah, I don't know about next week. Ah, I don't know. And you keep putting it off, putting it off. Then God will do something about it. And he will judge you. So verse 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. The word chasten means to inflict suffering for moral purification. That's what the word chasten means. To inflict suffering for moral purification. Suffering's not always bad. Sometimes we need suffering more than we think we do. We don't like suffering. None of us do. But sometimes we need it. It's like uh, medicine. If it tastes bad, it must be medicine. If it tastes good for you, it's probably not good for you. No, if it tastes good, it's probably not good for you. I think I got that right. But chasten means to inflict suffering. 
for moral purification. Chastening brings us to confession of sin and makes us morally pure. So if you are not judging the sin in your life, if you've got a little trail of breadcrumbs out behind you, I'm speaking, you know, in picture form, you sin and it's like you leave breadcrumbs behind you and you've got this little trail. If you don't turn around and pick that up and clean up that mess and ask God to forgive you and go to certain ones you've offended and make things right, if you don't do that, God's going to have to do that in your life and he'll bring chastening in your life. Have you ever heard this verse? Pride goeth before a fall and a haughty spirit before what? Destruction. Now, pride is a real dog. And pride will offend people, loved ones. Loved ones. A man stands, you know, at the altar and he's going to marry his beautiful bride and he makes his vows. Maybe he even memorizes them. You know, I'd climb the tallest mountain for you. I'd swim across the deepest ocean, shark-infested ocean for you. I pledge my love, I pledge my life, my blood, my love, I give it all to you. And then, as they're in the car, you know, with the strings and the tin cans just married, you know, and she says something, oh, be quiet, he says to her. Whoa, what happened? Well, we're like that, folks. We do that kind of thing, and sometimes we hurt the ones we love. Sometimes we hurt the ones we hate too, by the way, but sometimes we hurt the ones we love. Not so good. We need to fix that. And if you've got a little oil spill out behind you, you need to get out and clean that thing up. You need to make apologies. You need to write letters. You need to make visits. You need to do whatever you need to do to make that right. And ask God to forgive you first. He's the first one that needs to forgive you. If you don't do that, God will bring chastening into your life. And he will chasten you and chasten your, you. And that's where the weak comes from. And if that doesn't work, that's where the sickly comes from. And if that doesn't work, what's the next step, folks? He'll kill you and take you home to heaven. Rather than let you keep on dishonoring his name. Say, wow, I came to church to hear this. Yeah, you need to know the truth. All right, let, look at verse 34. If any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. Condemnation is the state of being guilty of wrongdoing. You've done wrong and you've been found to be guilty because you haven't dealt with your personal sin. Now, let's wrap this up here. Some churches purposely limit access to the communion table practicing what is known as closed communion. Does that mean these churches are bad? No, they can be great churches, wonderful churches. In closed communion, access is restricted to members only. One problem by doing it this way is if we did it this way, we don't do it this way, but if we did it this way, the tendency would this table then be the table of Grace Baptist Church and not the table of the Lord. We, uh, we have no problem whatsoever with churches that have closed communion. God bless them. Um, we don't do it that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This chapter is the greatest single chapter that we have in the whole Bible on the teaching of the communion service. And if access to the table was limited to members only, 
I kind of think that it would say something to that effect here. But there's no mention here of baptism. There's no mention of membership. There's no mention of Bible reading. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of tithing. There's no mention of, of uh, living by faith as a, as, as a, or giving by faith as a prerequisite to communion. The only prerequisite mentioned here is salvation and the confession of personal sin. That's it, folks. That's the only prerequisite mentioned here. But it seems to me, my opinion only, that the careful Christian will get baptized, will become a member, will serve the Lord, will be reading his Bible, will be letting his light shine, will be uh, getting involved with tithing and and faith promise and, and good things like that. Those are all good things. It seems to me that a careful Christian will get involved with these things. Years ago, I shared that opinion when our church was in 9061, that tiny little building we had in 9061, King George, I shared this opinion uh, that a Christian really, honestly, ought to be baptized and a member of the church and living for God uh, before they take part in communion. And we don't make that a law, but I think that that's a smart thing to do. And I shared this opinion. I got a phone call that afternoon. Um... A woman in the church took great offense to what I said. And she, she asked me on the phone, did you actually say this? And she repeated my very words back to me. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I said. And then she went, oh, like that. And she said, well, goodbye. And she hung up and she left the church and she took her husband with her. Never saw him again. Well, should this communion service be closed? Well, remember please that Christians are under grace. They're not under law. Should a Christian be baptized, become a member and serve God? The answer is yes. Absolutely yes. But as soon as you attempt to enforce those rules, you can become guilty of putting Christians under law. Because Christians, they're saved, they're on their way to heaven, whether they're a member of the church or not. They're saved and on their way to heaven, whether they're tithing or not. They could be stealing out of the offering plate and still end up in heaven early, mind you. <laughs> That's where the sleep comes in. But they're going to end up in heaven. And we have to be careful that we don't place Christians under law. Uh, Christians should get baptized. They should become members all of their own free will, not because we force them. And that's why we, we don't have a closed communion table. Um, we have what we call close. Close. Communion table. We restrict the access to Christians only. We don't police the table, but we make it known. This is for saved people. If you're not saved, this will kill you. I'm giving you the warning right now. Don't do it. Don't do it. And if you are saved, and if you're living in sin, God will chasten you. He'll get after you, and he'll bring chastisement into your life. Don't partake. Don't partake. Get your sin looked after first. 
And so therefore, there seems to be the three basic positions a church can take on access to the Lord's table. The first one is called open. It means anyone and everyone, you know, saved, unsaved, doesn't matter who they are, they can have access to the table. The second one is closed. It means saved, baptized, godly members only. And the third is close. This means saved, sin-confessed, walking with the Lord. Assuming that if a Christian is walking with the Lord, they're going to get these other areas eventually looked after. And so again, I say Christians ought to get baptized. They ought to become members of, of the church all on their own free will, not because we force them. And this is why we, we uh, have close communion. We, we restrict its access to saved and sins all confessed up. We don't police the communion table, but we do warn every man and every woman. Folks, that brings us to the end here on the five rules that govern the table of the Lord. I hope you found them instructive.